Well, we come to the end of our Human Being series. And today, landing on new self, old self, and the sanctification process, which I mentioned at the beginning of the service. Um, as we come to the end of it, I do want to review some of the ground we've covered. And I don't want to take a lot of time with this, uh, but since it is the landing point for the sermon, when you look, there's 15 topics. Some of them, like the ones underlined, fear and agency, took several, multiple ones, took several weeks. But there's your 15 topics. Name, what's our core character? When God's trying to reintroduce himself to humanity, he just basically gives names. And when he meets people and gets to know people and saves people, he often changes their name to summarize who they really are. We have forgotten our name. We've forgotten who God created us to be. And so we need a reboot. We're made for communion with God and with each other. Uh, but a lot of things hinder those relationships, especially shame, guilt, fear, and judgment. The judgment, we have reasons to have shame, guilt, fear. But the gospel addresses those reasons. And through the gospel, we can practice holiness, regain agency. I would really encourage all of you to spend decades contemplating what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 7 and um, how that becomes a path to wisdom for us um, so that we can celebrate God's first gift to us, which is actually yourself. If there's no you, there's no you to redeem. Um, so he wants you to have a clean spirit so you can relate well with him, with yourself, with others. Recapture your sense of authority or being that and rest and truly keep in step with God's spirit. So that's a lot we've been covering for quite a few months. Um, so if there, just real quickly, for time's sake, if there was one of these things that most jumped out to you, for those you've heard at least significant part of the sermon series, something that really came out to you as we land on putting on the new self, putting off the old self, what would that be? Nothing. Okay, that's what I thought. <laughs> it's a big question to ask. Oh, you're right at the end of a sermon series. Anything jump out to someone? It doesn't have to necessarily be one of these topics per se, but Carol. One through 15. Well, one through 15. <laughs> Thank you. Clean spirits. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the disturbing passage, you're talking about an unclean spirit, always seeking rest but never finding it. But still, a lot to learn from that. Kevin? What's that? Name. Name. Begins Everything begins with identity. Okay, I won't, I won't belabor it. Just, you know, just kind of as we, that's a launching point for winding it down today and just kind of reviewing that ground that we've covered um, as we try to put on the new self, put off the old self, which we can now do through Christ. But to really do that, um, and Colossians 3 is a great chapter for this, then you have to orient yourself the right way. A lot of, as you begin every day, you know, we get up out of bed and we're kind of foggy. And sometime between that moment and coffee for a lot of us, the whole day starts rushing at you of everything you have to get done. 
And you're kind of swept off your feet by that. And really, from God's perspective, I think often disoriented from the get-go. Um, yeah, I don't think we should legalize that. People used to turn around and say, you have to do your quiet time first thing in the morning. You, you need to give your best time to God that you can manage within your schedule. I'm not saying that, that we should just do this first thing. But I am trying to say that there are multiple passages where God emphasizes that his mercy is new every morning. And that there is value. It doesn't have to be your quiet time, but in just trying at the beginning of each day as the day rushes at you, that you take a few moments to try and orient yourself correctly. Because really, this day that you're being given isn't all that. <laughs> it's um, orienting your heart and your affections toward heaven. And everybody wants to think that the deep stuff is intellectual. It's not. That's, I'm not saying it's not important. I'm saying that the hard part is really orient your heart and your affections toward heaven every day. And that's really what Paul starts in Colossians 3, because as you try to orient your heart and your affections towards heaven, there's something that was first really discovered in like one of the most intense experiences a human can go through, fighter pilot. Talk about life coming at you really fast. <laughs> and you having to make decisions that are going to be often life or death. But you're trying to process them at speeds that human beings were nowhere near designed to go. So, you know, take driving on the beltway and amp it up. You know, especially if you're like launching from an aircraft carrier, landing on an aircraft carrier, engaged in combat. Okay, and so this takes all of our human processing and amps it up to ridiculous levels. Okay. There are certain athletic endeavors that can do this to a person. Uh, yeah, there's been a lot of sports science gone into analyzing how difficult it is to play quarterback in the NFL. And, how fa and really the key to a quarterback is how fast they process things because of the chaos that's going around you for just a couple seconds. Hike! Stop. Go. Ready? Hike. And, you know, 300-pound men trying to break you in half, and, and you're trying to, um, you know, so there are certain human activities, fighter pilot, NFL quarterback, you know, where you are processing things, and these provide insights for us. Um, violence, self-defense. Um, and what people have discovered is what they call an OODA loop. O-O-D-A. Okay. And we're all doing this all the time. It's just you really notice it when it gets amped up to something that intense. And the first thing you do is you make observations. But and the next thing you need to do is orient yourself correctly. Oh, orient yourself correctly. This isn't what most of us do. We make observations, we have our system in place. If it's self-defense, it could be, I'm gonna do a roundhouse kick, or whatever you've been trained, and you try to impose that on the environment, which if you're lucky and it happens to be right, you look great. But most of the time, it's not right. See, so you make these observations, and then you try to make your life fit, rather than just orienting yourself correctly. See, that becomes the key is it's not really about, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. It's, whoa, here's reality. How do I orient myself correctly to it? That's the second O. Observe, orient yourself. Decide, act. O-O-D-A. Observe, orient, decide, act. Now, if you're a fighter pilot or if you're in a violent encounter or if you're an NFL quarterback, this is happening in microseconds. 
but it's happening in life. And these extreme situations helped people identify this. Of course, when you observe things, and we're doing this on small levels first, the reason why we kind of ram things through our system is we basically choose whatever emotionally makes us feel most safe, which is what we already know, rather than actually choosing safety, choosing the best path. Um, and that's where all the problems start in, is you try to orient the world to you instead of orient yourself to what's actually happening. And in all of this craziness of life, God is sovereign. <laughs> and heaven endures, and his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion has no end. And so as you go through this scary thing that's called life, and you're getting these spikes, guilt, fear, shame, this is the deep stuff that we say is just ignore that. No, don't ignore it. The gospel addresses it. Don't ignore it. But if we're really trying to figure out how I should orient myself, shouldn't I orient myself to the stuff that's going to be there when everything else fades away? See, it's really about how I orient myself, not what I'm seeing. And then if I orient myself the right way, I'll, I'll make wrong decisions still, but I'll make them less often. And since thought always precedes action, if I make better decisions and I follow through with action, I will act better. And the turning point is how I orient myself. Which is what Paul's saying in Colossians 3, is, hey, set your mind, orient yourself toward heaven. There's different ways that I say it. Forgiveness is all about stuff that's happened to us that we've done to other people, and that's so important so you can let it go because your best days are always in front of you because heaven's in front of you if you know Christ. If you don't know Christ, you can resolve that right now. That's the first step in orienting yourself the right way is get to know Jesus, trust him. And, but really the challenge becomes not just, oh, let me build this theological system where I'm orienting myself toward heaven. Okay, how about your affections? Because you can have your system and check all your boxes and then turn around and be covetous. And really what you're orienting yourself toward is when do I get the next raise? When do I get the bigger house? When do I get the new car so that I feel better about me? That's the kind of stuff Paul starts talking about in this chapter. He says, that's idolatry. See, how do you orient your affections the right way? And in Colossians, and Ken did a good job of trying to kind of introduce the sermons, uh, the scripture reading, because you jump into Colossians 3 and you're like, well, there's all this stuff. Okay. Um, and Ken just couldn't handle <laughs> jumping into Colossians 3. Um, and I would just uh, um, refer you back to a couple things to help frame Colossians 3, because again, for time's sake, I'm not preaching expositionally through Colossians today. Um, but if you go back to chapter 2, verse 12, Paul makes a point. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So death, burial, resurrection. This is how he starts framing it. And then in chapter 2, verse 20 and 21, he focuses on the death side of it. And that follows in those verses where he says, if, you've, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of this world, the basic principles of this world, the way people typically think, the way people typically operate, um, why, as if you were still alive to that, 
do you submit to its regulations? Because here's how people think. Do not handle. Do not taste. Do not touch. Fear. <laughs> Don't. 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 And we live this way. Do not. It's negative. And the motivation is fear of torment or punishment. Are there reasons why we are so powerfully motivated by such things? Yes. <laughs> that is what the gospel is about. But do we, once we know the gospel, do we ever really dig into those affections and realize how much this drives what I do or don't do? And Paul's saying, stop. You're dead to that. Why do you keep submitting to it? Do you realize that the world, the flesh, the devil so-called even in the name of the church, is going to play that card with you as long as you'll listen to it. It's not what Christ died and rose for. And he said, and those things are there, but that shouldn't be what's motivating you. And then you get to chapter 3, verse 1 through 2. And Paul's trying to find this balance because we're so vulnerable to legalism and condemnation and taking advantage of fear, guilt, and shame negatively motivate people to perform and those things will make you perform but they won't really orient you toward heaven because law can't and the problem is not the law we know that the problem is what's going on in our hearts And so Paul tries to find this balance in chapter 3, verse 1, and say, how about a positive seek? How about a positive motivation? Well, there's not a whole lot positive. <laughs> that, you know, we keep trying to find positive motivations, and we keep getting our hearts broken. The scriptures say it. Heart, you know, hope deferred makes the heart sick. So people fall back onto the negative one. I'll just try to avoid the bad. But Paul's like, but there's one positive motivation. You know, the unshakable kingdom, heaven. And Jesus is there. So, yeah, faith is going to have to kick in. You're going to have to release results about this life. And yes, if you operate in faith, you'll get a lot of good results. And if you operate in faith, sometimes you'll get worse earthly results. You, just, you have to let that go and just orient toward heaven. And that can be positive. But then you got all this stuff inside of you that you have to let die because you're going to die. <laughs> and everything that you love is going to die. And everything you're hanging on to, you're either going to learn to let go of or it's going to be pried from your cold, dead fingers. But there is a positive motivation. Orient yourself toward heaven. Think about that. And if you're going to do that, then you have to fight the things that stop you from doing it. <laughs> and keep it that simple. Once you get your orient, you've observed, and now by faith, you've oriented your mind the right way. If you can keep your mind oriented that way, with that simplicity comes clarity. There's all this stuff that gets in the way and pulls me away from that orientation. And if I don't stay really focused and really courageous in my faith and really persevering in that, then eventually I'm going to turn to these things because they offer short highs and short relief. 
and that's my woundedness, why is it always the bad stuff that I turn to? Because I'm also a sinner. Okay. So there's the broken heart. A hungry heart believes lies because it just wants to believe something. And that's powerful even in believers where we will hold on to our systems of thought and I've said it multiple times in this sermon, there is no theological system that doesn't butcher some text of scripture somewhere. But somehow we just got to hang on to our systems. And there's better ones and worse ones and there's good doctrine and bad doctrine. But somehow we have to systematize it. <laughs> and then there's just sooner or later that passes that doesn't really fit and we just kind of make it fit. What's going on there? It's emotional. It's in us. It's not healthy. It's not good. So you look at these verses, and of course you've got the, the ones that nobody wants to talk about. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness. That's the ones that, you know, all the first ones. Covetousness, the Pharisees didn't talk about that because they had very covetous hearts. Um, but they talk about all the obvious bad behaviors. But really have to read the whole paragraph because there's other ones. Anger, wrath, malice. Just being malicious toward people. Not giving people the benefit of the doubt, choosing to infer a worst motive. Slander. And, and this is getting really bad in our culture, obscene talk. Oh, cussing's not that big a deal. All right, it's not that big a deal compared to murdering somebody, but it's unbiblical. It's clearly unbiblical. Obscene talk is not fancy. It means back then what it would mean now. <laughs> it's obscene. <laughs> it's inappropriate. If I dig a little deeper on that, it's a shortcut and an unhealthy way for you to process emotions that you would be far better served to process in a more noble way. So you're shortcutting it rather than letting yourself actually feel that. And now you're tr dropping that bomb on everybody else and making them process it. And somehow that makes you feel like now I'm being real. No, it's shallow, it's weak, it's obscene. <laughs> it doesn't build anyone up. It's a cheap way to say, now I'm real. You know what's really real? Processing all those emotions and not cussing. <laughs> isn't that, I mean, that's, isn't that harder? Isn't it actually just a shortcut just to go ahead and cuss? And maybe if you've been raised in evangelical Christianity, you don't say it, but you think it. <laughs> and we have all of our Christian cussings. Or we just change a, a, a vowel usually. And okay, I mean, that's better than actually saying the truly obscene word. But Paul's to orient your mind toward heaven. Process things differently. Do you think God's really primarily interested in whether you change the vowel or not? I mean, yes, if you're going to say it, please change the vowel. Don't actually use obscene speech. But he's trying to get us to engage with these things, our heart, our affections. And fight the things that stop us and take us away from heaven and distance us from God and make us feel disconnected. That's where the devil makes his heyday. And if you're going to fight the things that stop you from doing it, yes, there are those negative things, but you can't just stop there. Do not, do not, do not, do not, do not. There has to be, once again, that positive motivation. You dress for success, but not the way the world talks about it. When he says, put on 
the new man, put on compassion, put on these things. That literally means get dressed. So again, when do we get dressed? Well, you know, if you're lounging around or not, you might be in your pajamas till 4 p.m. And there's days where that is the holy path. <laughs> but generally speaking, as you start your day, you get dressed, right? So again, try to, as you wake up in the morning, oh, I'm, I'm alive. I have another day to make a difference for eternity. So how do I orient myself, dress myself, give myself the best chance to succeed at that? And that's putting on this new man. And dressing for success, verses 9 through 11, starts with, do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices. Stop the lie. Lying in general, but especially, this is the big one, the lie that the old man is who you are. And even as Christians, we do this all the time. I bring it up often. The classic example is, well, what I really feel like doing is flipping the bird at that guy who cut me off of the highway, but since I'm a Christian, I won't. You're already beaten. I mean, it's worse if you flip them the bird and, and act that out. Um, just like it's worse if you actually commit adultery versus thinking about it in your heart. It's obviously worse to go out and do it. But see how Jesus is trying to get back to where did it all begin? Begin with your heart, your affections. Can we start there? Otherwise, we're just dealing with symptoms. Can we get to root causes? And the real lie is that you are the old man because you were born a sinner and you've known that, but that's not who God... We have to define humanity by what God designed humanity to be. If we're not even going to start with the blueprint, how are we going to build the house? We're going to try to build our own way and think it's better. The blueprint is bear the image of God. That's what's essential to humanity. Sin actually can be cured and really represents a loss of our humanity that we can only get back through Christ, not through our own works, not through our own efforts. But that's kind of the lie, and we all live it every day, where we're kind of in our self-talk identifying with the old man. Kevin said it. It all starts with what do you identify with. Rather than identifying with the new man, but listen to Paul in Romans 7. When I sin, it's no longer I, the ego, the true self, that does it, but sin living in me. That's not Paul diminishing personal responsibility. That's Paul identifying himself the right way so that he can fight the right way. He's orienting himself. Dress for success. And if you do all this stuff and you orient yourself the right way and you're now spiritually grounded, that doesn't protect your soul, your psyche, yourself, your thoughts, your emotions from all the ailments of a cursed world. That's prosperity gospel. That makes me want to cuss, but I won't. <laughs> it, it doesn't help you. It doesn't protect you from that stuff. It didn't protect Jesus from it. And talk about the guy who's always oriented toward heaven. Even in his worst moments, it's some Gethsemane and the cross took him some time, but he worked through it, he did it. It helps you process those things better. So you can represent heaven here on earth. And we need people like that. 
More than ever, we need people like that. More than ever in like our lifespan, not more than ever in the history of humanity. Can we look at what's going on in our culture, our neck of the woods, where our church is? We need people who deal with the hardest things in life and process them well. For the first time in our country, our neck of the kingdom, where we're fighting the war, for the first time since World War I, our lifespans are getting shorter. We now know why. The National Center for Health Statistics shows that the declining lifespan is a result of deaths of despair. Their quote, not mine. These deaths of despair include significant, significant increases in drug overdoses, liver disease related to alcohol abuse and, and obesity because they're emotionally eating and your liver just can't process it all, and suicides. These are coping mechanisms that don't cope very well, but they're shortcuts. They're kind of the equivalent of cussing rather than processing the emotion the right way. Drug overdoses, liver disease related to alcohol abuse and obesity, and suicides, despair deaths. I love Phil's quote, so many of these behaviors are suicide on the installment plan. I've heard you say that many times over the years, it's always stuck with you. That's what it is. Oh, you, now you can do that, or you can be the Pharisee and just be like, I hate people. People are pathetic, people are shallow, people don't deal with real stuff. Which is what happened when Jesus showed up, you had the Pharisaical approach, and then you had the people who were you know, doing these kinds of behaviors. Which one was easier to cure? <laughs> the alcoholic, the obese person. I mean, if you go down that pharisaical route, that is so hard to cure. And all these behaviors are coping mechanisms for wounded souls and they're all sinful. It's not either or, it's both and. So as you dress for success and you try to get to this point where you can change your heart and your affections. And Paul starts transitioning through this in verse 11 um, and then verses 12 and 13. In verses 9 through 11 he says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all. Then. And then he says in verse 12, therefore put on. Okay, we are becoming, again, in our neck of the kingdom, in our area of the woods, where we're trying to represent Christ, we're becoming very tribal. And everybody's identifying with things that are part of who you are, but they're not what's in front of you. They're not really the core of who you are. Look, ethnicity exists in heaven. You can look at Romans 7 and see that. Every kindred, tribe, nation, tongue, and language. I think gender exists in heaven. I think it's pretty odd. Those things exist. They're part of who you are. But when you start saying, I'm going to identify primarily with this, then you divide the church and you hinder the kingdom of God. And this is part of who we are. And I also to be recognized and valued because from Paul's point of view, the difficulty was 
for those pharisaical Jews to value any of this other stuff. And what the gospel taught them was, oh, it's all valuable. But there's something more valuable. <laughs> Is that Christ gives us a connection. And it's, even in diversity of culture and thought, what I, the way I tried to say it way back in 9-11 and all that stuff that happened, and we had our freedom fries instead of French fries, because we were so upset at the French, you old enough ones probably remember that. I've only read about it, I'm not that old. <laughs> I remember it and I said, do you realize that socialist French believer is my brother in Christ? And that red state, conservative, patriotic American that doesn't know Jesus isn't? Though I could probably hang around with that guy and get a lot more conversations and not argue. But do you realize how I'm identifying with things that are part of who I am? but they're not really the core of me. Meanwhile, I'm, I'm a brother of that socialist French person. See how we have to, see, now talk about how hard it is to orient yourself the right way when it's so much easier to just identify. Even in Sunday school this morning, you know, I, think, I think I heard James say it. You know, how do we listen deeply to each other? He said, well, if you agree, <laughs> it's a lot easier. And it is! <laughs> if you see it the same way, then it's a lot easier just to listen. I mean, it's really very honest and insightful. Because that's true. He wasn't at my table, but I listened anyway, because I try to listen to James. James says a lot of good stuff. And every once in a while, some really crazy stuff. I have to go, no. <laughs> um, yeah, it just, it's easier just to settle in to the people that just talk and think and act the way you think. But the church is bigger than that. Or needs to be. It is. We need to step up. And that, when we do that, we start to change our hearts and our affections. And that takes time. But when he says, right after saying all this, that Christ is all and in all, and that's what we have in common, and that's bigger than all this other stuff. He's not saying that other stuff doesn't exist anymore. He's saying Christ is bigger than that. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. And then the big one. Well, how do you do that? It's easy to just get that list. But really, verse 13 is the key. Because we don't just suddenly go, oh, I'm going to feel compassionate today. I'm going to change my affections. They're notoriously stubborn and like not doing that even when you tell them to. I'm going to feel kind today. Here's the big one. I'm going to feel humble. I'm going around today feeling so humble. Well, you're not. <laughs> just, I'm just going to feel patient. Verse 13 is, see, we read these things and Paul you know, gives these lists and we're like, okay, well, how? But verse 13 is the how. And I could really pull that out and get super technical with it. That, that, the, tech, the technical part doesn't matter. What matters is he's being very clear. How do you start to actually experience these things in your heart? How do you start to experience compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience? How do you do it? Well, I just withdraw so that I can feel better. Well, that's the Pharisee approach. But Paul says, and that was Paul's approach, by the way. 
And the people that made him not feel that way, because he wasn't that way, but these people made him feel it, were the Christians. So he hunted them down. And it was really Christ making him feel that. He says, bear with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. And if you want to know who you should compare yourself to, bear with each other and forgive each other like Jesus has done for you. There you go. There's your standard. And the idea of bearing with one another, well, what does that mean? It means endure, <laughs> accept, tolerate, even accept what you would most complain about that person. Yeah, he's a good guy, but you know, he's always got to be right. That's what you say about me. And you're wrong. I'm right. I'm not. <laughs> and, you know, Paul's saying, okay, so fine. Let's say you're right about that. Can you bear with them? Well, people are shallow. They don't want to talk about the deep things of the faith. Okay. What does that say about you that you write them off? Because do you really think you're all that deep compared to Jesus? And he's bearing with you. Every time that person comes to your, your periphery, there's that complaint you have against them. Ah, well, good. Then why don't you chew on that for a while and bear with them? Maybe it's good for you to like feel that. I mean, it doesn't feel good, but maybe it is good. That's what bearing with one another means. And then forgiving each other means you've got all this stuff going on inside of you where you're trying to endure, you're trying to accept, you're trying to tolerate, you're trying to bear with them even when you've got this complaint against them, right or wrong, you're feeling that. And he says, respond graciously. Don't give yourself an excuse to not be gracious. Now imagine if we just started doing that. Do you think over time, the Holy Spirit might start wrestling with our heart and changing our affections? We might actually become more compassionate, kind, humble, meek, patient. Yes, we would. And then all along, you're like, you get to a point and you have these epiphanies, and you're like, wow, I thought I was being so noble, and I'm realizing how much I was not like Jesus. So let me just put on Jesus. And it just becomes a positive motivation. 1985, I was 20 years old, and I closed with this. And this song actually got to the top of certain pop charts. Shocking. I can't imagine it happening in our culture today. The song was called Kyrie Eleison, which means Lord have mercy. And it's a prayer that's said in more liturgical circles where people will say, Kyrie eleison, Christos eleison, Kyrie eleison, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. And it's got a lot of imagery in it. But if you know that liturgy and the symbolism of it, it's by a group called Mr. Mister. I have no idea what they believe, but it's a powerful song. I was 20 years old and I heard this. I'm like, am I hearing what I think I'm hearing on the radio? Which, in the fundamentalist circles I was in at that time, I wasn't even supposed to be listening to the radio. So I'm like, can I talk about this? And my short answer was, I did. And then I would stop because people would get upset. And, um, and then I would go back and really doubt. And be like, well, maybe I shouldn't. But now I just read the lyrics to you from the pulpit. <laughs> so, um, the wind blows, and the wind is a symbol of the Holy Spirit, hard against this mountainside, this rock that has become me. 
across the sea, that sea of time and eternity by God's throne, into my soul. It reaches into where I cannot hide, setting my feet upon the road. My heart is old. It holds my memories. My body burns a gem-like flame. Somewhere between the soul, my heart, and the soft machine, that was a term for the body, is where I find myself again. Kyrie eleison, down the road that I must travel. Kyrie eleison, through the darkness of the night. Kyrie eleison, where I'm going, will you follow? Kyrie eleison, on a highway in the light. When I was young, I was 20 when the song came out, I thought of growing old, of what my life would mean to me. Would I, have fallen would I have followed down this chosen road or only wished what I could be? Kyrie eleison. In the darkness of the night. Kyrie eleison. On a highway in the light. One of the most troubling things for me as a pastor is how negative and critical people become. And they don't even realize they're doing it but their first comment is, um, is negative. Why, in light of this scripture, do we act like putting up with people and being gracious is so burdensome or difficult when surely Christ puts up with far more from us than what so easily irritates us about other people? Such irritations pull us back into the devil's trap back into our tribe, back into those who think and feel and act like us, rather than straining forward to what is really our common identity and goal, namely, Christ. Kyrie eleison, down the road that I must travel. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time. Help us to become more and more truly human everything that you have created us to be in Christ. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.